This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Tigers and 20, a Go Tigers 247 audio podcast. Your one-stop shop for all things University of Memphis Tigers athletics. Here are your hosts, the founder of Go Tigers 247, Brooks Hansen, and lead writer for Go Tigers 247, Christian Fowler. What's up, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode. I am your host, Christian Fowler, and joining me, as always, is Go Tigers 247 founder, Brooks Hansen, and Go Tigers 247 digital content creator, Kenny Stubblefield. And guys, we're going to switch it up a little bit today. We've typically, over like the last five or six episodes, spent the majority of our time talking about game recaps, game previews. So we're going to switch up the monotony a little bit today uh, and get into some deeper topics and try to answer some of you guys' questions. So first off, like I said, we're not going to go full game preview, but Memphis did beat ECU on Saturday. But there is a much bigger storyline there we want to talk about. And Brooks, what is that? Alex Lomax, man, you know, I, 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 um, it bugs me when people, uh, do these tweets where they're like, oh, for all the people who are hating on this kid need to be praised, you know, like equally praising the kid now. Well, that's how this thing works. Like if, if you're (laughs) sitting here encouraging people that were criticizing a certain player for poor play. And, and encouraging them to, you know, speak the same uh, amount of truth into the atmosphere about their good play, you're kind of like telling us the obvious, right? Like, when you play bad, we talk about how bad you're playing. When you play good, we talk about how good you're playing. And Alex Lomax was not playing well to start the year, and now he's playing really really good basketball like i i mean i'm talking about like one of the top point guards in the entire conference level of play right now alex lomax is a standout for memphis and he is the difference between a memphis team that was struggling to find an identity and now a memphis team that looks confident in what they're doing and looks like they're playing to win versus playing to lose Anybody else? Hello? Bueller? Are y'all there? That was a nice transition. <laughs> it was so good. I didn't even know you were transitioning. You're like, wow. Yeah, that was impressive. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right. Um, you know, Alex is, yeah, it's exactly what you're saying, Brooks. Like, you know, n- media fans, like, we're not, none of us are supposed to be yes men, right? Like, so the 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 phrase that I hear all the time is keep that same energy, Keep that same energy. The same energy you brought to to Alex when he was doing bad, keep that same energy. And it's it's like 
those kinds of those kinds of responses are understandable because you want to prop up Alex Lomax and say and and say give him his flowers right now like this dude is playing some great ball. It doesn't it doesn't take away from the fact that yes he struggled at the beginning of the year and I think you I think you you look at at Alex as the barometer for the Tigers team like when they were struggling so bad it was when Alex was str- struggling to find an identity um, on the on the court. Now he's found it. He knows his role and the Tigers. It's like, it's like that one piece, that one Tetris, that Tetris piece, right? Like where you put that Tetris piece in the, the red zigzag that you were hoping for. And then everything just falls <laughs> into place. Like that's what I feel like Alex has brought to the to the team over the last few weeks is he's found his role and it's just brought everybody else in line on the team. When he's on the court, Everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing. And that's what a point guard does. That's what a leader does. It would be one thing if we had criticized Alex Lomax towards the beginning of the year and he were putting up lines like 10 points, 9 assists, 5 rebounds, 5 steals, 1 turnover. But that wasn't the case. And right now, that was Alex Lomax's line against East Carolina he was the the straw that stirred the drink. He was everything that this Memphis team needed in that moment to settle them down, to really just buckle down and get that win. Um, you know, Memphis started off in that game well, got a little shaky because they started missing shots. They uh, still managed to hold ECU to 59 points. And when things got shaky, when it felt like that game could have slipped in the wrong direction for Memphis, Alex Lomax settled things down, and he had guys there to make big shots for him. And Christian, you tweeted uh, on Saturday about one guy who uh, who is playing extremely well right now, and he made probably the biggest shot of the game if you're looking at a single shot, and that's Lester Quinones on an assist from Alex Lomax, a corner three uh, late in the game. Lester Quinones shooting almost 45%. Uh, in his last 27 three three point attempts, and so those two guys together are taking this Memphis team to another level. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that stat line: ten points, nine assists, five rebounds, five steals, with only one turnover. I would love to see the number of players that have had that stat line this year, if any. Uh, if there have been, it's a very very small amount because you just don't see that type of efficiency from a player that has the ball in his hands as much as Alex. And I want to go back to something else you were saying because it's been a common theme since that South Florida game, and it's that when Alex comes in the game and starts playing well like he did on Saturday, it completely changes the outlook of the game and of the way Memphis flows on both ends of the floor. And like I said, that started with that South Florida game when he came in and was just nonstop on both ends was – you know, making making solid passes on the offensive end of the floor and was so active on defense that it completely re-energized the entire team. So we can look back, well, that was probably a month ago at this point, and say since then, Alex has been kind of the the rock of this team, the guy that really that that really shifts the momentum, that brings in energy when the team needs it, that is a leader. And it's what we've you know, we've expected it in years past from Alex because we know that, you know, he's been in the system for so long. He's the oldest guy on the team now. Uh, he's great on defense. 
But this is way different than it was his freshman and sophomore year when he was making plays because now he's actually contributing on the offensive end over the past several games. You look back in that South Florida game, and he didn't do much on offense. He made the spark on defense. Well, in this game against ECU, he hit some really, really big Man, shots. That floater in, through contact, a little eight-footer on the left side of that the rim. That was a such tough a good move. Shot. Tough shot, man. Yeah, and and th- those are plays that he, it looked like he was trying to make earlier in the year, but was forcing them. And that's when you you heard us say in podcast after podcast that Alex is taking the ball down low and he doesn't know what to do. He panics. He either pass makes a terrible pass out wide or tries to shoot over three players. He's figured that out now. He's gauged you know his range now from being able to drive in and make a decision much quicker. Uh, whether to take a shot, even if it's a little bit contested, or kick it out, and it looks so much better at this point. The confidence is obviously there for him. So, and what made and, it what's made it easier for him to do that, Christian, to be able to make those decisions, is that guys are hitting shots. You know, the three point shots are falling. You know, at the beginning of the year before DeAndre was even eligible, it was Musa down low, and and Musa's going to be a good player. But Moose is very limited, and so you don't have to guard him that much right now. Um, and so when Alex was passing the ball out to the to the to the wing, guys were just bricking shots. Well, that's not happening right now. Yeah, you've got your two two of your best players right now, Moose Cisse and DeAndre Williams, playing horrible games against East Carolina and you're still winning by seven points and it's all because of Alex Lomax. I mean, you look at DeAndre Williams, he is two of 11 from the field, seven points, fouled out, eight rebounds, solid game, but not what you've got to have from your second leading scorer, the oldest guy on the team, one of your leaders, if you're going to win at a high level. But when Alex Lomax plays at that level, he makes up for a lot of dudes' mistakes. He makes up for Musa Cisse playing 17 minutes, fouling out, and scoring two points. He makes up for DeAndre Williams having games like that. And I'll just, I'm going to go on record. If Alex Lomax keeps playing like this, Memphis has a chance to win this regular season conference title for Memphis in the American and push them to a number one seed in the American Athletic Conference uh, Championship Tournament. I'm I'm dead serious. If he is playing that well, Memphis has a shot. They've got a shot. I'm not saying it's a guarantee because obviously other guys have to play well. They've got to continue shooting the ball at a high level. You know, they've got to have Landers. They've got to have Lester. They've got to have – DJ Jeffries has to step up like he did on Saturday – uh, they've got to have guys hitting shots, playing well, playing as a team, running this offense, and continu- continuing to play the defense that they have uh, so far in the American. And, I, and I'll tell you, we're, we're going to take a quick break here in a second, but I'll tell you why I completely agree with that, and it's because the American is such a guard-heavy league. When you look around the league, most of the, t- the vast majority of the team's top players are in the backcourt. And Alex Lomax has a way of completely erasing those guys. Look at Tyson Etienne and how he played against Memphis. Alex Lomax was largely responsible for that. Look at Kendrick Davis's two games against Memphis. Alex Lomax was largely responsible for that. So I think that is a fair point, and it's because if he's playing like this, 
then the other team's best player is more than likely not going to have a good game. Even if they have 10-plus points, it's probably going to be inefficient because he forces terrible shots. I mean, you look at guys—I mean, Tyson Etienne has had an incredible season— but couldn't get anything going against Memphis because of the pressure that Alex uh, that Alex applies as soon as you cross half court and sometimes even beforehand. Kendrick Davis is the same way. Two straight games of nothing on the scoring output. Yeah, um, I mean, if Memphis can go into Houston, you know, first game and establish a precedent for their guards that they can compete with the Quentin Grimes, with the Marcus Sassers, with the Dejan Giroux of the American. You know, if Lester is doing his job and locking up, uh, you know, whether it's Grimes or Giroux, uh, not sure who they'll stick on him, uh, stick him on. And then Alo and Boogie are collectively, you know, locking down Sasser. Memphis can win those games. There's, there's nothing about those games that says that Memphis cannot compete in those games when Alex Lomax is playing at this level. Uh, and again, that's that's the key point and why he is so crucial to Memphis in, in this season. He makes all of the difference for this team. Absolutely. So like I said, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. We'll come back on the other side, talk a little bit deeper about the conference tournament. And uh, we've gotten some interesting interesting thoughts on you know a, a bid for the actual NCAA tournament and we'll give our thoughts on that on the other side. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. As I mentioned before the break, we are going to get into conference tournament and preview Memphis's next couple games. We want to talk about how important those two games against Cincinnati and Houston are moving forward. But Brooks, let's start at the top with the NCAA tournament. There have been plenty of people that have said, you know, it, it's still a possibility for Memphis to get in that large bid. It can happen if they win out, if they do this. What is your take on uh, some thoughts that we've heard on an at-large bid for Memphis? Uh, I would say ifs and nuts and candy nuts. I mean, <laughs> why are we trying to hope and pray that Memphis gets an at-large bid 
when the reality for Memphis is they have very few signature wins. They have some bad losses. Um, and the reality for their schedule is that the only two remaining games that offer them any sort of like high-level win for their resume for the NCAA tournament are both Houston. Um, you know, the first game being in Houston, the last game of the year prior to the American Athletic uh, Conference tournament is Houston at the FedEx Forum. So here's what I would say. Let's stop talking about whether or not Memphis can get in the NCAA tournament as an at-large bid. Let's control what we can control. Uh, let's focus on winning every single game in front of us. And at this point, Memphis has to play like their life depends on their performance in the American Athletic Conference Tournament. They've got to play extremely well if if they want to hope to get into the NCAA Tournament, if not win at all. And the best way that you can do that is run the table, try to get a number one or a two seed, or top four seed ideally, get that by and go in, into you know Fort Worth, Texas and try to win the entire thing. And then you don't have to worry about whether or not you get in at large. I, I mean, every, it feels like every year we debate, you know, oh, is, are there chances still alive? And every year we're left waiting. How about this? Let's just, let's just watch this team go out and dominate people and win the rest of their games. And and let the chips fall where they may. I mean, yeah. And when when are we gonna uh, like? When is enough enough? Because because this was the same story last year, right? It, it can't. Yep. It was the whole you know back half of the year. It was okay if they win this game and this happens and X Y Z and it's just too much. Like you said, just control what you can control. Focus on what you can focus on. And an at large bid. Yeah, go ahead. I think one of the things that's interesting that's a that's a positive outlook or positive take is this is the second year in a row. We didn't get to see it come to fruition last year because the tournament got canceled. But this is the second year in a row that Penny's teams have been peaking at the right time. Like, they were playing their best ball at the end of last year going into Fort Worth. I mean, there was a legitimate, like, the Tigers could win this thing. When at the beginning of the year, nobody last year was thinking that. And it's the same way this year. They're, they're playing... They're playing. I'm not saying they couldn't. They weren't thinking about that, you know, prior to um, at the beginning of the season. But during the season, it was like, yeah, oh, like man. post James Wiseman leaving the team, yeah, like January. Right. Yeah, yeah. I but mean, this year right now, Memphis thing. has to. They've got to go in. They've got to go beat Cincinnati. Period. They've got to go beat Cincinnati, and it feels like this team shifts like at a wider margin than almost any Memphis team that I've. I've covered in a while. Like it, it, you could see them one game be absolutely dominant and they go like 18 of 30 from three. And then the next game they're going like six of 22 from three and they look like pretty good. You know, like I can't tell if it was just that they weren't hitting shots or they weren't hyped up for this game. Cause it's not a great team, but like, how about this? Let's watch them go in beat Cincinnati and then watch them go in and see how they do against Houston. And if they beat Houston, then maybe we can talk about it. But the reality is like you can look at BPI, net, Ken Palm, and every other stat reference that you want. None of those things are going to save them at the end of the year if they drop a random game to Tulane. None of them. None of them are going to save them. None of them are going to be the crux 
of the argument if Memphis splits with Houston and then loses in the third round of the AAC um, tournament. They're not going to save them. So go beat people, get in the tournament, try to win it, and then get in. Yeah, and I think the reality of the situation that some people aren't looking at is that unless Houston just absolutely collapses, which isn't going to happen because they have a high level of talent and an incredible coach in Kelvin Sampson, they're going to finish the year inside the top 25. I mean, they could probably lose both games to Memphis and still finish in the top 25. I think they would only have four or five losses at that point. So uh, the whole at-large bit, I think uh, I think you did a good job of putting that to rest, Brooks, because it it really shouldn't even be a, co- a topic of conversation because it's just something else to worry about at this point. I know, I'm sure Penny's not talking about an at-large bid, but for the fan base and as a... Uh, as someone that is fans of of other teams and and has has had plenty of uh, fandom heartbreak, looking at something like this is only going to prolong the inevitable of what's going to happen. So, as Brooks mentioned, run the table. You you get Cincinnati, which is a is a very winnable game. You take care of business there, and then you go to Houston and you play your heart out and you see what happens. And and if you play like you have played in some of these previous games, it is possible. But if the team that played against UCF last week and against ECU on Saturday comes, you're probably not going to win that. You you can't you can't shoot as bad as they did in their past two games and plan to win. They need that first UCF game, uh, that Wichita State game, that first SMU game. They need that level of offense and then guys like Alex Lomax and DeAndre Williams to step on the defensive end if they want any shot to beat Houston because this is – this is the big one. Unfortunately, the you get your first game against Houston on the road, which is a tough draw. That's just that's just the way the schedule lies. But you do get them back at home. So we've seen Memphis beat good Houston teams in the past. They did it last year. We've seen uh, decent Memphis teams get dominated by Houston. So this game could go any way. Uh, I think these Memphis-Houston games have been just as unpredictable as any of the other conference games over the past several years. So you have to focus on Thursday. You cannot look past this game because you have to win it. And that's that's something that, I'm not going to lie, does concern me a bit because we've heard Penny Hardaway say a plethora of times over the past couple of years that his teams have overlooked worse teams. And I mean, he even said it on Saturday after the ECU game. These guys came in here expecting to win because it's a bad team. That is a mindset that they have to get rid of if they want to run the table the rest of the way. Memphis has eight games remaining in the American. Houston has seven. Uh, theoretically, let's just say Memphis takes both of those games. Houston finishes five and two in their last seven games. Memphis finishes eight and zero, oh, runs the table. That puts Memphis at twenty and six overall. That puts them at uh, sixteen and three in the American. That puts Houston at fifteen and four. Memphis in first place to finish the year. That That is the only way that Memphis is getting an at-large bid, and then they cannot turn around in the opening round game, drop a, you know, a goose egg. They cannot go into that. And so what you're really saying is if you want to, to hold out hope that Memphis could get an at-large bid, you have to hope for the absolute best-case scenario in which you beat everybody in front of you you play your best basketball of the year and and somehow hope that the matchup you get in the opening round of the American tournament uh, is favorable as well. And 
the reality is Memphis just needs to focus on continuing to get better, continuing to develop their offense, continuing to play extremely good defense, and then you know go into the tournament, get hot, win it, and go to the NCAA tournament. So we're talking about the Houston games a lot, and I think they're extremely important. But sandwiched in the middle of those two Houston games is the Wichita State game. And that is a massive game for the Tigers. Wichita State's going to have it out for Memphis. I mean, they they owe Memphis one. <laughs> Christian, what are your expectations? I mean, what are you – I mean, that that's a huge game. This, this Cincy-Houston-Wichita State trifecta is – probably the three biggest games of the season for the Tigers, I would say. I, it, like you said, it's a tough draw. That's a that's a difficult matchup. Wichita State can beat anybody on the in the conference on any given night because of their defense, and they also have guys on the off, offensive end that can take care of business. I mentioned Tyson Etienne earlier. If he gets hot, I, I mean, you're, you're pretty much screwed. Uh, I mean, he is arguably the best pure score in the conference uh, I mean I've watched him play a few times this year and when he is hot it doesn't matter if you're in his face it doesn't matter if you trap it doesn't matter if you double and try to roll off of screens he's he's going to hit shots so that's the most important matchup I'll call that the 1A matchup the 1B matchup is Morris Udezi um, he he is non-stop energy and action on both ends of the floor uh, another guy that can get hot on any given night is going to probably get his, you know, eight and 10 minimum in almost every game. So those are the two matchups. Can DeAndre Williams and Musa Cisse put the clamps on Morris Udezi and can Alex Lomax, Boogie Ellis, Damian Ball, and some of those other guards shut down Tyson Etienne? Because if you can't, if you let those guys get theirs, then you're you're not going to beat that Wichita State team. Well, they, they know the formula. You know, that, that game that they played on January 21st was one of their best performances of the, of the year. Uh, held Wichita State to under 30% shooting from the field. I think uh, you, you talked about Etienne, and I, he was like one of like 12 from the field. Yeah, it was, it was uh, bad. It was his worst performance of the year. And Memphis has shown, like I'm talking about from the beginning of American Athletic Conference play, Outside of Caleb Murphy, uh, which he's not even South Florida's best player, they can shut down. They know how to go out and lock down the opposing team's best player. They do it night in, night out in the American. And, and that's, to me, that's what leaves me hopeful for uh, both Wichita State and their two games against Houston. Because if you can go in, you can shut down Grimes or Sasser or Giroux. If you can if you can limit their their top scores and say we're gonna make some other random dude on your roster you know like maybe mark for Houston we're gonna make a freshman beat us Memphis has a good shot I have a question for you Brooks I've been meaning to ask you because kind of transitioning to the defensive side of the ball you know the, we've talked about it um, over the last couple of weeks about how the Tigers defense, no matter how their offense is doing, you understand that their defense is going to keep them in games. It's going to be hard to blow the Tigers out because of their defense. Um, and I think it was just a couple of games back is when Penny instituted that three-quarter um, court um, trapping press. Why is that press so difficult for teams to beat? Because we haven't seen when the Tigers put that thing on and they ratchet up the the intensity on it, it is almost like you see teams that, that are good teams going, their minds get blown. 
and and it's very difficult for them to get into their offense, get it past half court, and get it into their offense. What is it about that that zone or that that press that's been so effective? Yeah, I mean, so these teams, there's enough film on it now. They know it's coming. Um, they they know what to expect, but so there's a, a coach that used to coach for uh, Alabama Huntsville. He's now uh, the head coach at Lipscomb named Lenny Acuff. He says uh, they can pr- prepare for the things that we do, but they cannot prepare for the speed at which we do them. And to me, that is a, a great, great basketball quote. Uh, and it's it's easy to say, okay, we know that this is coming, but then to actually get into the game and have your scout team in practice throw it at you and try to like walk through it, but then to have you know a six nine guy like DeAndre Williams uh, in the backside of that circle press, where you know he he's coming up off of you know two guards running at your ball handler. And then he's out there making plays, or Landers Nolly or DJ Jeffries is out there making plays to intercept passes uh, to to beat the 10-second count. Because the reality is, like, these teams are all struggling to get the ball even close to half court, The at least the majority of the time that Memphis throws this press at them. And... So what's happening is they're trying to get the ball to half court. They're struggling, and then they're having to make panicked passes that aren't really well thought out. And Memphis has so many long defenders in the kind of, I guess, what you could call the secondary of that press. It's the backside of that press where all they're doing is going out there and saying, read the, read the offensive player's eyes, read the pass, go out there and make a play. And it's Memphis's length and speed because there are very few teams in the American that have that length and speed that Memphis does. It's hard to replicate. And when you can't replicate it in practice, you can't fully prepare for it going into a game. And that's the difference. you know. And, and Penny Hardaway and staff, they, they also did a good job of kind of throwing some wrinkles in. There's two different kinds of presses that they've been running. Uh, if Y'all out there, you can Google circle press and diamond press. These are not like they're not new. Penny did not invent some new type of press. They're just running a circle press and a diamond press, and it's just the formation at which they're running and when and how they run players at at offensive guys as they bring the ball up the court. It's they they're throwing in wrinkles. They're changing timing. They're changing who's coming from where. And it's throwing teams off, and that's all you've got to do. You've just got to disrupt them just enough to make mistakes. Brooks, I can't remember if you said this on the podcast last week or if this was off the record, but I think it was off the record when we were all talking about it. And you said it still looks like teams are so caught off guard by the length and the size and the speed of Memphis when they get in that press, and that's 100% what it is. And I think you made an excellent point when you said they the teams can't replicate that in practice. Teams don't have four and five guys over six, seven, six, eight with that kind of speed, especially like you mentioned with DeAndre Williams, who can come in that backcourt and be extremely uh, effective in that press, whether it's you know right at half court or or in that three quarter court press. If you can't replicate it, you can't prepare for it in the right way. And if you can't prepare for it in the right way, then you're not any type of ready for it when it's thrown at right. you. And to a 
to be able to adjust on the fly against something as you know as in depth and as difficult to break as a three a three quarter court trap and press, it's almost impossible to adjust to that in an actual game. For a coach to draw something up to beat that press in a game is going to be very hard to do, and for players to execute, it's going to be even more difficult. So. What they're doing is is still obviously catching people off guard, even though there's so much film, uh, there's so much film on it from the past several games when Memphis has done it to the level to, to the level that they have. It's not the concept, it's the execution. It's the the Jimmys and the Joes. It's you know the concept is nothing new. These coaches can prepare for that. The difference is the actual players that they're having to face that are doing it. When you're going up against a, uh, you know, a, a, a scout squad, uh, like when Central Florida has got their scout squad and they've got a five-nine walk-on point guard playing defense, and then a six-six-two-two guard and a six-four-three guard, it's totally different when you get in the game and you've got. You know, Lester at six five, six six, and then uh, maybe you throw in Damian Ball at six three, six four, and then you've got Landers at six, you know, eight, uh, you know, or in DeAndre at six nine, flying at you out of the the secondary of that press. It's totally different. And you know, I, I had another coach tell me that it's really, really hard to make decisions in basketball when you constantly have two guys flying at your face. It's really hard to make decisions. I mean, you might think you're prepared, but when you got two dudes flying at your face and and running at you with their hands up, especially when they're big and long, uh, you get in trouble real quick. So, uh, what do we want to do next? We want to do Q and A. Let's do yeah. Some let's Q take a. a quick break. Give let's us a quick it. break, real quick, Brooks, and then we'll uh, then we'll do some Q and A. All right, I'm gonna try not to mess up this transition. So y'all stuck with us this long. Uh, so if you want the answers to the questions that you asked on our boards, stick around after the break. We're going to go point by point. We're going to even talk a little whiskey sours with y'all. Are these, right are these real questions? Are these real questions? These are, these are, are actual questions. real questions from okay. real people who actually respond to us. Questions that have been asked. Questions have been asked and we will provide answers. We'll see you on the other side. Ready for this? Yeah. If is the most original and heartfelt movie in years. Magic like this comes around once in a lifetime. This Friday, experience it with your whole family. Can we do it again? If ready PG. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for some real live Q and A, and we're just going to start from the top of the podcast Q and A thread. Uh, so Fishman asked best best whiskey for a whiskey sour, and uh, you know I'm going to say that because of the way that a whiskey sour is with some egg white, um, 
the egg whites kind of take over a little bit. They muddle down some of the flavor. I would go with a stronger, uh, maybe a more uh, a spicier bourbon or whiskey. So I would go with like a rye, uh, maybe a high alcohol content. But really, any cocktail is going to be about your your taste. Um, so for me, I, I usually, for cocktails, for m- mixing drinks, I go with a cheaper bottled and bond because it's right at the 100 proof. So I would go with like a bottled and bond Rittenhouse or an old Overholt b- bottled and bond. You could even do some old Forrester uh, rye. So yeah, that's what I would go with. But for the rest of this, I'm going to turn this over to Kenny. That yeah, He's not... He's not the uh, whiskey sour question and answer guy. So I'm going to turn this over to Kenny and let him moderate this. And we're going to go just question by question. So, Kenny, it's all you. The funny part about that first question, Brooks, is I think that was a joke question. And you took it very seriously. Like, that was that was, that was, that was, that was Brooks's. That was his favorite question that's ever been asked ever, by ever been a asked. mile. Hey, up next, coming in March, we're starting a Go Tigers 247 cocktail <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and Christian's I will, be I will not that. be on that yeah. one. Um, <laughs> we're going to invite Trey Draper, and he's going to be like, <laughs> lemonade. <laughs> okay. Um, All right, let's go. Brooks, first question, which recruits are we pri- prioritizing most in the 2022 class for basketball? Well, you know, the good news for Memphis is that they were done with 2021 early for the most part. You know, they're still going to look for some pieces to add to it. But 2022 has been all about developing relationships and watching a ton of film. Um, So there are a lot of guys that Memphis has not been able to see live, but has started developing relationships with. They've got guys like Noah Batchelor, who transferred to IMG, who can really, really shoot the ball. He's 6'6", 190 uh, out of the Maryland area. Zacho Littleton, who's out of Georgia. Derek Whitehead, Memphis is still recruiting really hard. I just don't see that one happening. I could I could be wrong. Uh, Jalen Duran, you know, he's one of those prospects, top, top five guy. You know, I think he's number two overall. Um, that actually reached out to Memphis to start recruiting him. So, um, you know, uh, that one's going to be tough. Player. He's he's going to be a guy that the G League is going to come after really hard. Uh, Shaden Sharp, Memphis has a good relationship with. Arteria Morris, Memphis will continue to push on him. Uh, you know, that thing is not over and dead. Sometimes when you get uh, people and outside influences trying to uh, push on a kid, especially a kid who um, who has a lot going on, um, you know, it can make for spur-of-the-moment decisions, i.e. his commitment, and then i.e. his decommitment. Uh, both were out, out of thin air. Um, so, you know, they've got good relationships with some guys down in Florida like Scotty Middleton. Uh, they've got Barry Dunning, uh, in Alabama that they've got a very, very good relationship with. Uh, you know, they're in a very good spot for Barry Dunning. He's a top 40 guy. Um, a ton of class of 2022 guys out of Texas. So, uh, something that a lot of people do not know and that I, I never put out, but, um, a lot of their Texas targets were actually at their SMU game in Dallas, um, so in, in the state of Texas, people were allowed to attend games and, 
Um, so they had uh, who I told you guys who did uh, I say Le- was there? Lee, Lee, Lee Dort. Dort. Um, who else? Colin Lee, Smith was not there. No, it wasn't Colin Smith. Uh, well, Noah, Noah Shelby was Noah there. Noah Shelby. Um, there was one more. Two or three other guys were there too. Yeah. So anyway, all of that to say, Memphis continues to push on these guys. They they those guys came to that game on their own. Uh, and here's here's a dude that is low key flying under the radar for Memphis, and that is Chris Livingston out of Ohio. If you don't know, that was a, just, I was I was literally about oh my to ask good you. Lord, I saw Chris Livingston when he was an eighth grader <laughs> coming up to the ninth grade his summer. I saw him at the Spring Invitational here in Birmingham, Alabama, and it was like a life-changing moment for me to see a 6'5", 6'6", kid coming down the court and doing a 360 windmill. It was unreal. In eighth grade? In eighth grade. And then to come down the court two plays later and do a behind-the-back like levitation style, just straight up off of two feet, behind the back, tomahawk dunk, on top of a kid. When you're in eighth grade, I was just like, holy crap. But Chris Livingston is a man-child. Memphis has done a tremendous job recruiting him. He will be a guy that the G League comes after very hard as well. Uh, I know a lot of people are shooketh from uh, the G League and – uh, Jalen Green and and all that went down there, but Memphis will continue to evaluate guys like that, develop relationships, and determine try to try to press early to see if they can get a commit out of guys like that. So, um, you know, those are some of the top priorities. Memphis has done a tremendous job trying to evaluate. Um, and oh, Christian, we just slotted an article. Bryce uh, Griggs, uh, Bri- Bryce Griggs, uh, another guy who's an elite level scorer for t- class of twenty twenty two, and Memphis has done a really good job there as well. Penny Hardaway is taking the lead on him, so those are <laughs> we just listed like fifteen. Well, and then we <laughs> forgot one. We forgot one. Memphis local Amar Knox. Well, I mean, he's done. So right. he's committed. That doesn't count. Does it not count? Okay. No. no. All right. Um, next question, Christian. You talked about you off the off the um, air. You kind of shared some opinions on this, but I wanted to ask you this question anyway. Any hints or behind the scenes info regarding football transfer targets? Any names with smoke behind them? So uh, you know, I get I, I get the thought. I know there are a lot of guys in the transfer portal, and scholarships are opening up on a daily basis around the country. But Memphis has landed. Seven transfers. I think Jeremiah Oatesville. I'm. I've heard he's a walk on. I'm. I believe he's a preferred walk on. I don't think he's a scholarship guy. Uh, still a transfer from Austin P though. But if you listened to Ryan Silverfield's press conference on National Signing Day, they don't have any more early enroll. They don't have any more January right now spots. They don't have anything else, and until. Uh, I think they might not have anything else until August. They might have some spots for May, but I think the majority is August at this point. So it's going to be difficult to get a transfer and try to convince him to wait that long to come on campus because they've been in school. They're ready to get on, you know, wherever campus they're going to next. They're ready to get to that new school, learn all they need to know, start practicing, and they want to 
start or play a heavy role because they're leaving another program where they were likely starting. So uh, it's not impossible. Uh, there could be some late guys that slip through the cracks that in uh, during the summer or in August when fall camp starts that need a, that need a new home and Memphis reaches out and gets those guys. Uh, but as far as you know the the recent the recent future the the near future whatever's coming on the horizon in the next couple months I don't see their you know them anyway landing a transfer because they don't have any more of those spots to get a guy in during the spring. Yeah, it was really interesting during that Ryan Silverfield podcast. Christian, I think you're the one that asked him a lot about roster management. And that's something that you don't hear a lot of college coaches talking about. And it was his answers were extremely enlightening to me. So I can't recommend that podcast enough. It was a really, um, not, not podcast, the press conference enough. It was really enlightening. So our next question is, um, how have John Camden, Sam Ayamide, and uh, Josh Minot done this season? First question, there's a two-parter, so I'll just ask that first question, Brooks. All right. Um, so John and Sam are actually locked down, did not have a senior season, so to speak. I think both New Hampshire and Pennsylvania both uh, canceled their high school seasons. Uh, so they did not have a season. Those guys have just been working out, staying in the gym, uh, continuing their development, which honestly – might not be a bad thing that actually may work into Memphis's favor to where these kids are having the opportunity to solely work on developing themselves. Now, obviously it's going to take a little bit of adjustment getting back into like a full five versus five, you know, full court type of play. But in terms of skill development, that helps a ton. Josh Minot has had yet again, uh, another tremendous season, um, I think he was named to all district uh, down in his his league uh, and has his team primed for yet another state playoff uh, run. So I'm just going to go ahead, Kenny. I'm gonna, just going to take the rest of that question. What's up with the lack of minutes for Boogie? Uh, he's just – it's inconsistent minutes. You know, he, he'll start the game mainly, I think, because Alex Lomax is comfortable coming off the bench. I think his play has shown that he's comfortable doing that. So Memphis obviously needs a point guard who can come in uh, and play at a high level to start. I think Memphis was struggling to to score in the first five minutes or so of games, and Boogie is kind of instant offense at times. Um, but Boogie is also very inconsistent with his play. He ha- you know he's pretty high turnover guy. He's not a tremendously consistent shooter. Uh, he's up and down. Uh, has a tendency to stop the ball on offense and doesn't really uh, get into the flow of the offense and initiate their offense the way that I think the staff would hope. So I think some of that is just an inconsistent level of play. And for a while, it looked like Boogie was shooting to miss. Uh, it's almost like he expected the ball to not go in when he was shooting. And, and so some of it was also that his level of confidence was down. Yeah, when your most consistent player is a point guard, you're gonna not gonna get consistent minutes if if your backup is a dude who's playing consistently well. Great point, Kenny. Like that's the other thing is like Alex Lomax has played so well. Like, what are you gonna do? Like bench Alex Lomax and, and play boogie over him right now? No, you you bring Alex off the bench like you've been doing. Alex plays great. Boogie sits. <laughs> it is what it is. And let's not let's not forget Boogie's only played thirty to forty good minutes all season for the most. I mean, when you really look at the St. Mary's game and the last couple games that he started, 
maybe 30 to 45 good minutes all season. Right. All right, so what's up with Malco's um, inconsistent play, health, attitude? These are questions by the person, not not my um, insight. Some games he looks like a double-double machine, then he then next he's not interested in playing. Yeah, I've I've said this since he enrolled. Um, Malcolm may have uh, he's probably one of the most talented dudes, like ceiling wise, pure talent on this team. Malcolm has an extremely high level of talent. Everything about Malcolm is going to be about the how many inches is it, is it between ear to ear? Six. The six inches between his ears. Everything about Malcolm's trajectory, both on this Memphis team and long-term, will be about the six inches between his ears. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, What's the scoop on what you think Penny will do staff-wise next year? Things have looked much better, but I still feel if Penny wants a top 15 year-to-year, he's going to bring in an offensive-minded veteran. What's your hunch here? Well... <laughs> There's a little bit of a misnomer there that um, he doesn't have an offensive-minded uh, person on his staff. And I mean, Cody Toppert is was one of the top offensive minds coming from the NBA and the the, the G League when Penny Hardaway hired him. Uh, Cody Toppert is is actually sought out by. Uh, NBA organizations around the league and other basketball organizations around the world because of his offensive acumen, his, his, you know, his system. Uh, that's, and that's from Penny Hardaway's own words. So you've got somebody who has the ability to bring a high level of offensive um, culture to this team. It's all about, and I've said this for months, it's all about, if you don't practice it, it's not going to look like you have an offensive mind. You could have Phil Jackson as an assistant. And if you're not listening to Phil Jackson doing what Phil Jackson is recommending and you're not actually practicing what Phil Jackson is recommending, your offense is going to look horrible. So it doesn't matter who you bring in if you're not actually implementing the things that are being discussed as a system from an offensive perspective, you're you're it's not going to be reflected with what you actually have talent wise on your coaching staff. So I would say next year trajectory, it's going to be interesting because we've already seen some movement with the NBA. There's been, you know, some coach coaching vacancies open, open up. I think uh, uh, the Pacers had an opening uh, to an unfortunate incident. Um, you know, and then there's been some other stuff around the league where I think there is going to be some movement again this offseason where you've got a guy who's an NBA guy in Cody Toppert who I'm not saying that this is out there but or that it's being discussed, but the proposition is always there, um, especially right now when you're looking at college basketball having so much uh, budget restraint. You're talking about the University of Memphis just – you know, essentially cutting their assistant coaching salaries 20%. You know, that, that's a big deal. So if you get a job offer elsewhere in the NBA or anywhere else that could pay you more, I think that's an option. You also have to look at um, Tony Madlock, who has TJ Madlock, his, his son, uh, as a recruitable student athlete who, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, 
and again, this is not something that I'm hearing, but you know, who knows what a school might do to try to get TJ. Uh, could Tony Madlock end up on another staff following his son? It's possible. I don't see TJ coming to Memphis, so that will be interesting to watch. Um, so right now I would say it's too early to really talk about next season, but um, I think overall the staff is very solid. Um, all right, Christian, I'm going to throw this one to you. Has the team finally – has the basketball team finally turned the corner? This one is difficult. I would say yes, but I would also say you have to look at these last two games, and offensively they have not played up to the level that they showed they could in previous games. Um, I think UCF was probably due to play in the same team in, twice in 48 hours. That's hard to do, especially on the offensive end when they saw you be so successful and score 96 points, and now they have a different game plan to come back and attack that. And I guess you could chalk ECU up to what Penny said, that the team really thought that they were going to come in and win that game. So if those two caveats are true, then yes, they have turned a corner because they've shown that they are a good offensive team when they play up to par, and we know they're one of the top five to ten defensive teams in the country. So, uh, like I said, I, I think they have turned the corner. I believe they have turned the corner. But if that offensive trend continues to trend downward like it has over the past two games, then you're going to see a lot of people get aggravated and confused and have no idea what's going on. And it's really going to be difficult to tell because they play Houston, who is the best defensive team in the country, allowing about 57 to 58 points a game. So I don't even know how you're going to be able to tell in that game. So I think they have turned a corner, but they have to continue to show offensive prowess. They cannot uh, they cannot go back downward on this trend offensively or it's going to look like it did at the beginning and middle of the season once again. Brooks, this question is for you. Um, are guys still hanging out at Houston high school practices? Oh, Kenny, no comment. Come on. <laughs> come on, y'all. <laughs> come on, y'all. Ask that question. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to come find you on the board. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Brooks, you, I think you kind of already answered this question, but what unique trait does each assistant coach bring to the staff? Um, yeah, if, if you guys, question. if you want to break into that a little bit more or break that down a little bit more, you can, but well, I'll go in reverse order of hire. So, um, we'll go, we'll go with Jermaine Johnson first. Um, uh, and this is just straight up Penny's words. I think Jermaine Johnson brings a, you know, Penny has talked ad nauseum about him being a brilliant basketball mind. I do not know that personally. I'm not saying that it is not true. Um, but I have not actually had a chance to see any videos of Jermaine Johnson or, you know, JJ as, uh, in like a coaching clinic setting. Um, uh, so I have no doubt that if Penny is saying that, that it's true. Um, I think he, from all, all the people I've spoken to actually has a role in, uh, helping push this offense forward, this, uh, this motion, um, you know, this cutters, motion offense and pushing that for the staff. So um, I think that that's, that speaks to what Penny said. And I think the second thing is trust. Uh, Penny talks about trust all the time. And with this hire, he wanted to be able to trust this hire and have a relationship with them. I think that's what he brings. So Toppert, I think everybody knows that he's a tireless worker, uh, offensively gifted mind, 
Uh, you know, he is has revamped the University of Memphis basketball's uh, metrics and how they use metrics uh, and essentially try to moneyball their lineups. Um, so that's that's what I would say he brings to the table, just a tireless worker um, and relationship guy. And then Tony Madlock is a veteran of college basketball. He is way more connected than people realize. Tony Madlock can pull some strings uh, like people don't know. He's uh, He was actually one of the guys that was instrumental in almost every eligibility case that Memphis had this season and, you know, knows kind of the ins and outs of how to work with the NCAA uh, has a network of coaches that he can call around the country to get uh, advice and ask for assistance uh, and has a ton of relationships around the country for recruiting as well. So uh, I would say Tony Madlock is a lot more involved than the average fan even comes close to knowing. Um, Christian, you've been on top of the rescheduling stuff with COVID. Um, so I want to ask you this question. Will the Temple game that was postponed be rescheduled? I think that's going to be tough. And at this point, it doesn't look likely. Um, Brooks may have some more insight on that than I do as far as if that will happen. But when you look at how quickly they turned around the reschedulements for the uh, for the SMU game and the UCF game, those happened fairly quickly, uh, especially with the UCF game, I believe. I think they got that done a day or two after they got back to Memphis. And that Temple game is just still kind of hanging in limbo. And you look, and Memphis still has eight conference games left, um, and they already added that, that Houston game, I believe, is March 7th. So with the conference tournament being right in that area, it just it, it looks like that gets more and more difficult uh, as time goes by, especially when you look at the, at the amount of games they already have in February. I think they came into the month with nine or ten games. Um, and they had the back-to-back with with UCF. So a lot of games, um, and, and everything's going to get scrunched up. I mean, I think on average this month, they're playing a game every like two and a half games, or a, a game every two and a half days. Um, and then with that Houston game at the end of the year, right before the conference tournament, it, it doesn't look great. I, I think that would be very difficult to reschedule that game at this point. All right, cool. Um, last question. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure out, are we going to be able to schedule the Tigers? Going to be able to schedule a Land of Lakes game that Houston just had? Was it Land of Lakes? Is that what uh, Our Lady of Peace Lady or Lady of the Lakes? Our Lady of Our Lady Our Lady Land of, of Lakes. Lakes. Land of Lakes. Isn't that butter? Isn't that a butter brand? Yes, that's no, butter. The, the, that the final be score would probably be about the same if you just played yeah. sticks of butter. <laughs> sticks of butter. <laughs> they almost beat them by Houston almost beat them by a hundred, man. That was crazy. It was like once was it one sixteen to forty six? Lord, Tigers need one of those guys, one of those teams. Um, all right, last two questions. Um, Christian, I wanted to ask you this question. Um, what's the method behind Penny's rotation? This is again, this is not the three of us asking the question. This is a question coming off the board. What's the method behind Penny's rotation madness? That I mean, that's that's a difficult one to answer. I think it's gotten more clear over the past several games. Um, and, and we talk about this before before the past two years. We've said Penny at the beginning of the year is going to experiment to the highest level. He's going to throw different lineups, different rotations, different combinations uh, at all times to try to figure out what works. 
And even when you see something that does work, he still might go and change it up. Um, so it, it's not an easy method to break down or look at or to have an understanding for. But when you look at what he's doing now, it, it does make a lot more sense, especially the past couple games, bringing Alex Lomax off the bench and letting him work in that second point guard role with Boogie starting. I think that I think that one's pretty obvious. Boogie, as Brooks mentioned earlier, brings that instant offense into the starting lineup, and then you bring your leader and kind of your your tone setter off the bench and Alex Lomax with the guys that are already starting. Um, DJ Jeffries coming off the bench makes sense because he just hasn't played well this year. Uh, very up and down. We'll have games where he looks good like he did on Saturday. We'll have games where you didn't even notice that he touched the floor or made any any impact or very minimal impact. So uh, bringing him off the bench makes sense. The only thing that, that I can't really rationalize is the platoon swaps. I, I'm not a fan of those. I think that completely messes up the rhythm of the entire team. It's why you don't see that very often. Not many coaches are going to make a five-for-five five swap. Um, He's slowed down on that a little bit over the past several games. Yeah, I was about to say, those have been pretty minimized yeah. over the last over few games. Over the last few games, those have pretty much been put to rest, thank God. I think I think that's terrible for a basketball team and the rhythm and being consistent, I think bringing in a new five is completely in, inconsistent. And it, it's like putting a different team on the floor. You're taking team one off and putting t- team two on. And I don't say that in a in a in a negative connotation, like they're the second team. I'm saying that as it's like two completely different teams are playing basketball now, and you have no idea what to expect. So that seems like that may be done for the year, unless you know they just are, are completely terrible over the next couple of games, and he decides to start doing it again. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers the question as far as method. I think, I think his method early in the season is to see what works and to throw as many combinations and rotations out as possible. And as you see the team start having success, then they become more and more obvious what he's trying to do. Uh, put Alex Lomax back into the starting lineup at one point after he had a good game, basically to say, this is our best point guard and to reward him for doing so realize that was the wrong move and is now bringing Boogie or is now bringing Alex off the bench for Boogie. So it's been this way since Penny took over. It's going to be crazy and complicated at the beginning of the year. And as the year goes on, it becomes more and more obvious what he's trying to do. And I think that's like what we talked about earlier. I think that's why you see this team start to play so well at the end of the season, because they know their roles. They know the rotations, they know the starters, um, and it makes everything more consistent. Well, I'll speak a little bit to the method and I've already kind of hit on hit on this a little bit, and and a lot of what you see Penny doing early in the year is trying to establish a baseline for their metrics. You know, they they chart everything in practice, every single metric that you can think of, but it's still limited. You're not seeing live five on five action. You're not seeing different rotations with each other against uh, you know live defense. So what they do is they try to find the guys that they think will work based upon the metrics they have. And as their, as their statistics start to flesh themselves out, they moneyball their lineups. That is really what is going on. And you're watching it live. You're watching Penny Hardaway and this staff play with their lineups based upon what the metrics are telling them works best for this team. And slowly but surely, by the end of the year, you start to see this team really starting to gel, the best lineups playing consistently together. And it's a lot of it's because of their their MI, their data. 
That's impressive stuff. Kenny, I, I, you said that that was the last no, question. No, I have, I have one more for you. But I'm, um, okay. I have I one more say. for you, and um, then we can close it out because we're at an hour at this point. And this is, it's not surprising that Brooks comes back to the podcast and we start going hour long podcast again. I, but I think, I think this might, is this our first ever hour long? Jesus Christ, we've been talking for a long time. Yes, we have. All right. So, last question, Brooks. Um, are we still looking to bring a high level transfer point guard and forward for next year? I'm so disappointed right now. I thought you were going to ask me the other question. <laughs> Wait, what, what's the other question? You got to refresh your, your thread. Yes. Oh, hold on. The hold answer on. to that question is yes. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Same vein. I hate all whiskey. This is not me saying this because I love whiskey. Um, scotch, bourbon, all that crap. I can't even drink wine that's been aged in bourbon barrels. It's the worst flavor. But I have discovered that whiskey aged in cognac barrels is good to me. What's the difference in some wood that makes bourbon so bad to me? Is it a chemical? Is it in my head? What? Exclamation point, question mark. Great question to end the podcast on. Yeah, and this is a great preview for our upcoming uh, cocktail podcast that we'll be releasing that's completely a joke, by the way. Is this true, Chris? Um, is this true, Brooks? Do we need to? Okay. No, it is not true. <laughs> um, I don't need any more of an excuse other than staying at home almost every day with uh, two kids under the age of 10 to become an alcoholic. So <laughs> I'm, I'm good. Um, no. So I, I I usually use the same because uh, I've had other people tell me like, oh, I hate it, like including my wife. Like, how do you drink that? And me. Yeah, you. We tried to do a a bourbon tasting night with Christian one night, and he was not having it. Um, but I, I'm one of those weirdos that cilantro tastes like soap to me. I hate cilantro. I cannot stand it. Like I will not eat anything with cilantro on it. Um, it's a taste bud thing. It's a genetics thing. If you know anything about people that you know, cilantro tastes like soap. But everybody's taste buds are different. Uh, I like black coffee, um, and I can taste all of the flavor notes in a good cup of coffee. I can taste, you know, chocolate or, you know, cherries or strawberry or, you know, black Starbucks. tea or whatever. If But some people like really burnt, horrible coffee from Starbucks like Kenny. And if that's your Ayo. thing, then it's your thing. But, uh, you know, cognac has a very distinct flavor, and... It's really not about the different type of wood. It's what is in the wood. So cognac barrels, that cognac, all of that sweetness, all of that flavor profile soaks into that wood. Then you age the the whiskey or bourbon in the cognac after. It picks up a lot of that um, sweetness, and it loses a lot of the smoky, um, you know, the the flavor profile that would be there with just a you know barrel bourbon uh a bourbon barrel uh, so i would say it's just probably about your taste buds what you love and it's uh i also didn't get into bourbon until i started drinking and trying to taste different flavor profiles of coffee so it may be that one day you'll transition into that it's just about teaching your palate, training your palate and, and expanding what you enjoy. So guys, that was this. I, we might really need to do a podcast. I mean, right? I mean, I oh, can't God. be involved in that. 
but Brooks has the most. Everybody else listening, if you're listening and you got this far, if you got an hour and five minutes in, and you you, you like the idea, then uh, just th- don't hold your give breath. Give a thumbs We're up in the com- give a thumbs up in the comments. <laughs> All right, y'all. Christian, you got anything else? I'm good. Kenny, you got anything else? Christian is done. Christian is done. This last question of bourbon. Here's the thing. We're going to look at the analytics of this podcast episode, and, and it's, it's going to be go, a, It's going to go... <laughs> hey, if it skyrockets to the moon, yes. then we are, we are doing this podcast. <laughs> All right, right, guys. Kenny, anything else? Yeah. Um, if everybody in the, in the podcast comments will, will type the word pineapple as a comment... Brooks will do a VIP podcast. Woo-wee. Leaving it at the very end. I like that. Y'all stay tuned. Go Tigers247.com. We got everything you need. If nobody's got anything else, forever hold your peace. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Tigers in 20. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to leave a comment and a rating wherever you download your podcasts. If you're interested in daily content all about the University of Memphis Athletic Program, please hop over to www.gotigers247.com. Articles are published daily, and you can join the Go Tigers 247 family by signing up for a VIP membership for even more behind-the-scenes information. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball. And baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, (laughs) nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.